Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. Pain, trauma, suffering, all things Dr. Lee Warren encounters almost daily. He has 20 years of experience dealing with deadly cancers. Um, As a combat surgeon, he's treated catastrophic wounds and sat alongside family members coping with the news that their loved one is either permanently disabled or is soon going to die. But then Dr. Warren suffered his own family tragedy when his teenage son was killed in an act of violence. He became a student of his own pain and becoming much more acutely aware of his patient's pain in dealing with the news that no one wants to hear. He realized that we all have or we all will face or have faced what he calls the massive thing in our life. How do you find a way out of being weighed down with pain and anguish? How can faith take that central role? Dr. Warren's book finds a way. It's called Hope is the First Dose, a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. And he joins me now. Welcome, Dr. Warren. Lauren, it's great, great to be back with you again. Thanks. Well, it's great. I mean, I should also mention, though, that, you know, you're an award-winning author, a brain surgeon, uh, a patent-holding inventor, um, and a, an Iraq War veteran. Um, and you've been a guest on Lighthouse Faith Podcast before with your book, I've Seen the End of You. It's just a fascinating look about how you deal with terminal illnesses like in an operable brain cancer or something, and the fact that um, how do you deal with the trauma of knowing that life is going to end? Um, hope is the first dose. Is that kind of the natural progression from I've seen the end of you? Well, yes and no. I, you know, I've seen the interview was was memoir, um, and it was a story of me taking care of all those people with terminal cancer and trying to learn how to help people that I couldn't fix, be a good doctor for people that I couldn't agree. And, and while I was sort of learning how to, what I thought, teach people how to handle hard things is when we lost our son. And and so that book kind of ends with the, the, the months after we lost Mitch and, and kind of that we made it through that and found our faith again and all that. And, and over the years, I've, I've kind of realized that I've seen the interview as very descriptive and as a good doctor, I would, I would love to be able to tell people sort of not just that we made it through that, but how we made it through that. And so I decided to write a more of a self-help book on how do you handle these massive things that happens and how can you find your feet again? How can you find your faith again? How can you find hope and happiness again? Yeah, there are a lot of people in this world dealing with that sort of thing. And I, and I wanted to say, you know, so sorry for your loss, um, and I bet you've heard that, you know, like a thousand times. And, you know, just does that help for or hurt when people say, hey, sorry for your loss? No, I think sorry for your loss is a good thing to say. You know, there are a lot of things that do hurt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I always think that I'm sorry for your loss or we're praying for you or this is really hard. Um, those are always good things to hear. 
Yeah, because we've seen in these massive tragedies, mass shootings, uh, the school down in Nashville and some other places. I mean, it's been a laundry list of traumas that families have had to deal with unexpectedly. And we've heard also saying, you know, sorry for your loss doesn't cut it or, you know, you know, your prayers don't cut it. You know, I want to see some action. Um, is that just a reaction to the trauma? Is that just a visceral kind of reaction um, to the kind the trauma itself? Well, I think it, I think it depends on the context, right? When when people societally say words aren't enough, prayers aren't enough, we want we want action, and they're talking about something like mass shootings or those kinds of things. I think that that sort of language makes sense. But on an individual human level, when you're the one who's hurting and somebody else is engaging with you. Just as a as a human facing another human who's in pain, I think having kind words like that, you know, I'm I'm sorry you're hurting. I'm, I feel this pain with you. I'm I'm sorry for your loss. This is really hard. We're praying for you. I think those are always helpful, at least they were to us. How important is faith when you're dealing with trauma? Um, I know the APA, the American Psychological Association, probably has a lot of steps for people dealing with grief and trauma, faith probably may not be one of them, but in your opinion, because you're a man of faith, how important is faith in dealing with pain and suffering and making sense of it? Well, I think for me, it's it's crucial. And, and, and I think even it, there's been a lot of science that looks at um, the difference in outcomes in medical situations and in grieving and, and bereavement and pain situations between people who have some sort of faith or prayer versus those who don't and, and the outcomes are better people who people who believe in a loving god that cares about them actually this has been well studied in the breast cancer literature um it's clear that people who believe that there is a loving god who cares about them and their problem have better mm-hmm. outcomes in every measurable way than those who think they're alone in a cold uncaring universe so faith is important on a scientific level but on a personal level it it gave us the tools and the the floors, if you will, the sort of when the bottom drops out of your world, how far down do you fall? Do you fall all the way into despair and misery and, you know, drunkenness and, and mm-hmm. hopelessness? Or do you land somewhere that holds you up? And and that's kind of what we did. We, we, we suffered greatly, but we landed on things that we believed and knew to be true. And then we were able then to stand up on those things and start to walk forward again. And so faith for me, um, I would not have been able to survive the loss of my son without having faith. Um, you talk about in the book the circumstances around your son's death and, and that there's still some mystery about it. I mean, the police were calling it a murder-suicide involving knives, uh, um, involving a close friend. I mean, I think there's a mystery. Does it help to know exactly what happened in dealing with the trauma of a loss like that? Um, even now, there's just sort of this police say one thing and, you know, family members saying, well, that couldn't have happened that way. but. How important yeah. is just knowing the real circumstances? You know, I, before this happened in our family, I would have thought it was really important. The way my brain is wired as, as a scientist, I'm so interested in knowing the why and the how and, and being able to test and understand and prove things. So I would have thought it was really important. But as it turns out, as I've, you know, I began writing and podcasting and, and interacting with a lot of other bereaved families and in the course of my career i deal with a lot of people with terminal illness or people who've lost somebody from a head injury or whatever and what i've found is that people who don't understand what happened and people who do both are grieving and both are suffering and i don't think it really 
changes the fact at the end of the day that you've been through this massive trauma and been through this massive thing. I, I think we, we like to believe if we had answers that everything would feel better, but it really doesn't. And so I've, we have friends recently who had a son who was born with a congenital heart defect and he survived until he was 12, mm-hmm. finally got a heart transplant and didn't survive the transplant. And I can tell you after having long conversations with them, that they're no better off than we were because they had 12 years to sort of prepare for the fact that their son might eventually die from their from mm-hmm. his heart problem. They were just as wrecked as we were, even though we found out about ours after it had already happened. So, so I don't think it really changes the fact that you've lost this person and your heart is ripped open. And, and so I, I don't think knowledge really assuages grief to much of an extent. Yeah. Yeah. Your son was what, 19 years old, was he? Yeah, he was 19. Um, when you, when you heard, um, what happened, first of all, how did you hear? It was a phone call for us, um, Tuesday evening, we were home, I think it was eight or nine o'clock in the evening. I got a call from my ex-wife, um, Mitch was killed in her house, um, and she was, of course, inconsolable and, you know, devastated and, and was able to finally get the words out that, Mitch had been killed. And um, and so for us, it was just, you know, you're going along with your life and everything seems to be okay. And then the phone rings and, and it's never really okay again after that. How did, what was your immediate reaction? I mean, and, and the idea is that did you immediately rely on your faith? I mean, we've seen these very stoic movies where, you know, the person suffers a loss and they say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Uh, blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, was it anything close to that? No, I, I think that crazy people do. Stuff. I, I don't know. That's just a Hollywood thing. I don't know if anybody really does that. Um, maybe they do, but no. For us, it was immediate shock and um, this disbelief. I mean, the, the denial phase of the stages of grief, even though they're not really applicable to this type of grief, it really does happen when you experience some big major thing. You first deny, like maybe it's not true. Maybe we'll get there, and it's all some big mistake. But we've got to get in the car. We have to get our other kids. We have to make a bunch of phone calls. We have to drive an hour to this other town where he was. And and so there was a lot of this practical, we've got to go kind of stuff. And so your executive brain sort of takes over and you're able to do those things. Somehow in the midst of devastating loss, humans have this remarkable capacity to to sort of get up and move and do what they have to do. And, and so it was a long time really hours at least maybe a day or two before we really could sit with it and and sort of start wondering if the things we believed were going to turn out to be true or not but the first day or two was really just this immense shock and disbelief and you know overwhelmed kind of sorrow did you how much time was spent on trying to figure out why this happened i mean did you spend because there's because it was such a shock I mean, did you at any point try to figure out, could I have seen this coming? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a long story. I tried to sort of filter it out in the book a little bit. But basically, it was a small town in Alabama, and the police spent less than an hour in this house where they found two teenage boys who had been stabbed. Uh, the other boy, who was my son's best friend, was stabbed once. My son was stabbed eight times. There were three knives in the house that had blood on them in two different rooms and the, apparently the the two police officers from this small town 
uh, walked into the house, saw the two bodies. Um, my son's body was, was close to one of the knives. So they said, well, that kid must have killed the other kid and then killed himself. Um, and they basically called and had the bodies removed, cleaned the crime scene, didn't call for the FBI or state Bureau mm-hmm. investigators or any of that, which we learned later was in violation of state law at the time. They were supposed to call for investigators and all this stuff. And and so we, you know, we spent a day or two being told what the narrative was, and then we 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 couldn't believe it. I mean, these boys were best friends. There was no drugs or alcohol in the tuck screens. There, they had never been any kind of violence between them or in either one of their lives. No criminal records. You know, it was just this. We're yeah. supposed to believe that these two normal kids just got stabbed to death or that one of them killed the other one. Um, And so there was a period of time where we were calling the police and trying to get police reports and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, a a very kind friend pointed out, look, the evidence is gone. The reports have been filed. There will be no more data unless a third party's out there who was there or who did it or Mm -hmm. saw it happen. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be any more knowledge. And so you can spend your life trying to find an answer that can't be found or you can find a way to accept the fact that you won't know what happened and be able to put your life back together and start to move forward and that's really what it was really our only choice we could either become these people who were bitter and and defined by this black hole of of unknowing Mm -hmm. or we could find a way to say okay this has happened and our son is really gone and we won't ever get to know more than that unless god shows it to us someday and so we've got to just move forward. And that, that's what we ultimately had to decide to do, Lauren. Yeah. Um, I suppose, like you mentioned it just in passing about thinking, is there somebody who's a murderer that's out there that the police aren't looking for? Um, is Did you have to squelch that kind of thinking in order to get through this? Not I've had that thought numerous times over the years, but, you know, I, because it just didn't make sense. So there's there's three knives and, and even more the 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 idea that my son stabbed himself eight times like that. that is that possible? Like, mm-hmm. can you stab yourself in the neck eight times? Like, I, I don't know. It, it, it just didn't make sense. And yeah. so there was certainly a possibility, at least in our minds, that there was a third party out there who had witnessed the event or caused the event or was the perpetrator. And but but the fact is no fingerprints were they didn't dust for fingerprints they didn't search for any other people or mm-hmm. any other witnesses so we won't ever be able to know lauren so the the it either it either is that the story is as they anticipated as they said it was or there's some other story but we won't get to know and so i ultimately had to tell myself thinking down that pathway doesn't bring mitch back to you and it doesn't solve any problem of the past or the future, but it could certainly create a whole bunch of new problems if you dwell on it. And so we basically just had to say, we can't think about that. We, we can't, we can't dwell on it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you call it in your book and we mentioned in the, in the introduction and you've talked about it, this massive thing. Um, how did you happen on that description of what's, 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 what's going on here? Well, it, it came about because I take care of a lot of trauma patients. And as a neurosurgeon, you know, I'm always taking care of somebody that wrecked a motorcycle or fell down a flight of stairs or had something traumatic that happened to their bodies. And so th- that's easy to understand when you say my my friend died in a trauma, in a car accident. And then there's tragedies. You know, your your child 
is develops a malignant brain cancer and dies and it's tragic and horrible and you can understand that but there's all these other things that happen in people's lives and 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 the point really is that everybody has something like this that happens at some point but there's always somebody you know that's gone through some tremendous emotional trauma or an event an abuse a loss a death of a dream that they've been chasing for a long time something that's equally devastating to them on an emotional level and equally massive but not easily explained like a trauma or a tragedy yeah. so i just wanted to create another category of these these big massive things that happen in our lives that sometimes we don't even give people enough credit for like we don't we sort of discount other people's traumas and tragedies right right if they're not if they're not as big as we think they ought to be to cause the perceived effect of them and so i i wanted to give space in the book to to say whatever this is that tore this hole in your heart it's massive and it's real to you and and you can grieve it and you can learn to recover from it just as if you had experienced a trauma or a tragedy that's easier to explain I want to take a, a brief break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with Dr. Lee Warren and his book, Hope is the First Dose. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. And we're back with uh, Dr. W. Lee Warren. He's a doctor, uh, MD, brain surgeon, um, cancer specialists, uh, we're talking about hope is the first dose. We're talking about play, uh, pain and trauma and dealing with this massive thing. One of the questions I have is everybody has this massive thing, and sometimes the massive thing is very sudden, like the sudden death of your, your son. Sometimes it's prolonged, like when you know someone has a terminal illness and it's going and they're going they could possibly die and then they eventually do but there's also is there kind of a level where it's this the slow progression of life and you talked about you know the dreams that don't come true um you've worked for something and it will never happen the realization that someone you know I'll never have children of my own I'll you know I'm I'm never going to marry that person I'm not going to uh, is that part of the, this massive thing as well Absolutely. And and this this idea that your life can put you through a, a ringer and will put you through a ringer of multiple masses. And for most of us, unfortunately, there's not just one thing. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes it's one big defining thing, but many times it's lots of things. And sometimes they're of our own making. Sometimes they're other people's making and sometimes they're randomness of disease or or weather or some sort of cataclysm, right? But I think that's another important category, Lauren, that as you sort of were just alluding to, there's these things I call many massive things too. There's there's these chronic job problems and chronic stresses and relationship issues and these things that aren't they never quite reach that level where it feels like you've been ejected from your life, but but it just feels like why is everything always so hard? And mm -hmm. people begin to grieve a life that they perceive that they could have if things weren't so hard or th just a little bit of stuff was different than maybe I to be happier and i think that's just as real uh, and just as painful to people it just takes forever it's more excruciating almost because it never seems to get better yeah the arc is just a little bit larger longer than that sonic boom of the, the sudden tragedy right um you say um in your book the scripture that you know the second corinthians 10 5 that we should take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. What does that look like from a neurosurgeon's point of view? 
Yeah. So you have about 40,000 negative thoughts a day that pop into your head. That's it. That somebody did that research and it's about 40,000. <laughs> wow. You have about five times as many negative thoughts as you do positive ones. And the, and the problem with negative thinking is that most of those negative thoughts are not true. So feelings turn out to not be facts. They're feelings or chemical events in your brain and thoughts that pop into your head are also sometimes generated by past experiences, emotional experiences, circumstances, behavior of other people, that things that pop into your head don't necessarily turn out to be true. And so there's this verse in Second Corinthians where he says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. The idea is added to what Romans 12, 2 says, which is don't be conformed to what the world wants you to think. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you can learn how to, I call it biopsy, take a piece of your thought and look at it critically before you decide to respond to it. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it necessary for me to think about? Is it compassionate? Is it harmful? And all those things, if you can think about the thing that you're thinking about before you react to it, then you can make a more informed kind of executive decision about whether or not you're going to respond or react to that thought and how you're going to respond or react to it. Or should you get rid of that thought altogether and replace it with one that's more true? And what you do when you when you start to battle your thinking like that is you find yourself walking down better mental pathways and forming better synapses in your brain and automating better ability to handle and be more resilient to the things that come along in your life. And we had to do that too. We, we had all kinds of negative toxic thinking after you lose a child like mm -hmm. am i a bad father am i should i even try to give my kids advice if i if i can't save my son how could i help my other kids and why would they listen to me you know all those things and they turn out not to be true right your your kids still need you in fact they need you more now that they've lost a brother because they're grieving too in a different way and they need you to be there for them and your grandkids need your experience and your advice and and even having lost a child almost empowers you then to to love and interact with and nurture your other children in a healthier way going forward and so i think those negative thoughts that pop up that give you labels and give you limitations they need to be aggressively fought and battled and and sometimes it's even just that you have developed a lousy attitude. So I, I teach my <laughs> podcast listeners this thing called the lousy attitude lobotomy. So you take it, you take a thought biopsy and you say, that is not a true thought. It, I've got a lousy attitude about this thing and I'm the problem here. Like I need to change my thinking about this. I need to cut that out and change to a better posture and move forward in a healthier way. So do a, do a lobotomy of that lousy attitude and get it out of there. And it really turns out to be helpful as an exercise. And I, unfortunately being a surgeon i sort of couch my my writing in surgical metaphors you know but that but it works for me and i think the people that i teach it helps them too well that i'm sure works for a lot of people and works for you know many people who need just a different angle of looking at scripture that the bible actually addresses many of the things that science knows you were talking yeah. about bringing every thought captive um but you say you know you can't change your mind you can't change your life until you change your mind. But what if the problem is not wanting to change your mind? I mean, people get it stuck in a rut of a certain grief moment. What happens then? Well, that, there's actually a, an interesting collection of science around these people that get stuck. There's something called complex grief. About 10% of people that go into grief that, that get stuck in it, and they can't stop ruminating about the past, and they can't stop sort of yearning for the person that they've lost and they just can't move forward in their life. And, and we all know these folks. We, you know somebody who, if you see them, you haven't seen them in a couple of years and you see them and they lost their spouse 20 years ago, 
to mm-hmm. in a car accident. You'll say, Hey, how's it going? And they'll say, Oh, you know, I'm on my way to support group. I'm, I'm grieving over my, my husband that died 20 years ago. Like they're just, their whole life has become defined mm-hmm. by that thing and they're stuck in it. Right. And we know now from functional brain imaging that those people have a problem in this part of the brain called the cingulate gyrus. The, the, the cingulate cortex is deep in the middle of your brain and it sort of acts like the, the gear shift on your car. Like, like when you are feeling sad and you decide to, think about something more positive and, and shift your thinking that's that happens in the cingulate gyrus where mm-hmm. you can sort of shift from one emotional state to another or decide to take a different train of thought than another and those people have an inability to shift out of a particular train of thought they just stay in it and so there's a functional brain problem when you're stuck in a train of thought and you can overcome it by choosing for just a moment take a breath and and Take a particular positive thought or a true thought and think about it and then think about what your life would look like if you could make that more true in your life. And you'll find yourself able to start kind of shifting out of that thought process that you were stuck in by replacing it with one that's healthier and give yourself some inertia, ability to overcome that stuck inertia. And it should be said, I mean, we should always preface these things by saying if you're really stuck and suffering, anxious, depressed, unable to move forward, you need a therapist or a doctor. Sometimes you need professional help. So I'm not saying that just change your thoughts and everything will work out in your life. But it turns out that a lot of the things that we have trouble with can be managed successfully with this, what I call self-brain surgery, this just learning to think about your thinking and make better decisions about what happens next when you identify a particular thought that's not helpful to you. So Dr. Phil's famous for saying he'll have somebody on their on his show and, and they'll tell him how their life is stuck and they're having all these problems and how their behavior is is repeating the same thing over and over and he'll say how's that working for you yeah (laughs) is that actually help right how's it working for you lauren and it and it turns out that's an incredibly helpful exercise to just be honest with yourself and say okay this is how i've been dealing with this massive thing for a few years and i've become you know less employable and less marriable and less you know sober and all these things and it's not working for me my mm-hmm. life isn't working but then we don't ever go back to the thought that we're stuck in and say that's the real problem and so if we if we can learn to change the thinking around the behavior and identify those things that are not working then we can say well what would it look like to get to a place that does work let's shift that gear and start moving in a healthier thought process towards some things that actually they do work. That's self-brain surgery in a nutshell. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up an excellent point in terms of their perhaps people are comfortable with their pain. And so the therapist aspect is almost necessary. And it may take another person to actually recognize that there needs to be a level of therapy that they're maybe not open to at that point. I mean, is there a certain amount of guilt involved in trying to move on from feeling the pain and suffering and the tra- and the, from the trauma? Absolutely. There's um, some people that we begin to identify with the thing that happened and it turns into who we are and we need it to sort of live our life. We need that thing that gives us identity and purpose almost. And then the other group of people that get stuck there are people who, like you said, they feel like they're dishonoring the person they lost if they move on. If they, it, might, it happened with my daughter. So my daughter, Kaylin, who was a senior, a junior in high school when Mitch died, mm-hmm. I learned the best lesson from her. We, we had this little uh, table as we were walking out of our house, this little coffee table, and it had a bunch of pictures of Mitch and things that people had sent, cards and whatnot. 
and it kind of turned into this little shrine almost. Mm-hmm. And and I would sit there and look at it and think about it and talk to Mitch and look at his picture. And it became this little place where I was getting sort of stuck. And I came in that room one morning, Kaylin was on her way to school and I saw her standing in front of the picture of her brother. And she said out loud, she didn't know I was there. She said, Mitch, I've got to go back to school. I've got to continue on with my life. I have to carry on with my life, but I'll never move on from missing you. Mm-hmm. I heard my little girl say that, Lauren, and it was exactly the right thought process. Like, I'm not moving on. I'm not forgetting you. Right. I'm not I'm not leaving you behind, but I know you want me to live. I know you want me to go back to school. I know you want me to survive this. And I know, and that honors you. So so the thought process isn't you're leaving this person behind, you're forgetting about them, you're moving on, all of that. That's a, that's a powerful lie, though, that I think your enemy wants you to believe that if you take a step for your own good, that somehow you're harming the person that you've lost. And it's just not true. It's true that they want you to keep moving forward. And that turned out to be the most helpful thing that somebody said to me on top of what Kalen said, a colleague of mine who was another surgeon said, Lee, your son wouldn't want you to die from this too. He would want you to live. It would honor him for you to live and find a way to tell a story after this that helps other people. Like that's what your son would want. Don't, don't let yourself die from this too. And that's a, that's a perfect way to think about the idea of moving on. You're not dishonoring that person. You're not forgetting them. You're honoring them by letting what you learned from their life help you move forward in yours. This is is a process of transforming uh, your grief into yep. a hope. It's not you're not forgetting. You're transforming the grief into something stronger, something different. Um, yep. Maybe help me out with this. I'm not sure if I'm trying to say the right thing here. No, I think you're exactly right. You you. You transform, you take the pain and you let it refine you. I think the best way is to go back to what the Bible says, Isaiah, Isaiah 46, 10. Mm-hmm. God says, see, I am refining you, not like silver is refined, but I'm refining you in the furnace of suffering. So there's this, this process and we're in this suffering and we're hurting. And I remember telling God when I read that scripture, like, I don't feel like you're refining me. I feel like you're burning me up. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to die in this furnace. But what happens over time? is you come out of that process and you find little ways in which your life, not your life, which you are better at living your life than you were before you experienced that suffering. And that's what Paul talked about in Romans 5. Like suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And that all comes through the the, the furnace of suffering, right? So you, you burn away some things that you brought into that trauma that you didn't need to have and you don't want to take with you out of that furnace. You want, you want to come out of that better than you went into it. And that turned out to happen to us. Like we, we look back in the past and I can put uh, this trail of breadcrumbs all the way back to, I went through the Iraq war and PTSD and a divorce Mm -hmm. and a remarriage and all those things leading up to losing Mitch. And all of those things refined me in ways that prepared me to be able to handle the loss of my son. And it turned out to be strong enough to go through losing a child because without having had all those previous sort of reps, if you will, of going mm-hmm, through these mm-hmm. massive things, I wouldn't have been strong enough to survive it. And now I am, and I've and I've been refined further by losing him. And then I think that makes him proud of me. I think of that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about. I think it makes him proud to say, yeah, my dad lost 
me, but he didn't crumble. And look at what he's doing. He's helping other people. And, and my life matters. My, my legacy is that other people are being helped and finding hope because of what my dad and my mom and my other siblings have learned from me. Yeah, it's powerful. And, you know, I, I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, the night before he is arrested and he, he prays to God, is there just no other way? Is there no other yeah. way? And I think that's what a lot of people do. I mean, they know that they were fine, but is there any other way to great to have this maturity spiritually, intellectually, um, emotionally, without this trauma? And you're, you know, a neurosurgeon. You would understand, you know, the plasticity of the brain, how it creates these synaptic connections. Is there any other way for us to grow without this kind of trauma in our lives? No, there's not. I mean, you, you can learn a little bit from watching other people. That's why we write books. I mean, we, we write books and we do podcasts and, and we do those sorts of things to try to help other people learn some of the things that we've learned without having to go through exactly the same thing, right? We do that to try to help other people. But the fact is, when I'm standing next to you and, and you're going through something hard and I can read your emotional state and I look in your eyes, there's a thing called limbic resonance where where you can perceive somebody else's emotional state. You can almost know what they're thinking because your limbic system sort of lines up with theirs. And, and, and you know that especially true in, in marriages and people who really know each other. They, they can they can know what the other person is feeling by mm -hmm. looking in their eyes, right? And, and so you can learn some of that. And there's a thing called mirror neurons where if I watch you doing something, I watch you grieving, I watch you cooking or doing something, there's neurons in my brain begin to fire in the same areas that the ones that you're using to do those things mm -hmm. are firing. So, so I'm, I'm learning from you. I'm, I'm, I'm observing and learning and my brain is getting better able to do certain things because of watching you. But ultimately you don't have the ability to pull that off until you go through it yourself. Right. So you, you can't get stronger with your biceps without going to the gym and doing curls and breaking down muscle cells so they can grow back stronger, right? right? You can't get stronger without exercising and you can't get better able to handle emotional pain without going through emotional pain. You just can't. That's the, that's the good news and the bad news all at the same time, actually. Yeah. Well, the book is called Hope is the First Dose, um, a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. Um, Dr. Uh, w. Lee Warren, I, I just want to thank you for, for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. This has been quite enlightening. Thank you, Lauren. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. And thank you all for listening. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.